I'll ask that you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. My plan is to go through 1 Corinthians with us, with everybody on Sunday mornings for a while. Uh, it's a tough book. Not many people uh, teach through 1 Corinthians uh, verse by verse. Uh, it's mostly a reference book. Um, there are uh, a number of chapters in 1 Corinthians that uh, you probably know, uh, familiar with, have been quoted an awful lot. There's the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that makes its way into Easter sermons uh, time and time again. There is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that shows up in wedding spiritual gifts that makes its way in. Uh, there's the chapter in chapter 12 dealing with spiritual gifts that makes its way into just about every spiritual gift Bible study, book, and literature that, that exists in, in the world. But... It's a very tough book. Uh, it's a difficult book. Not because it's necessarily hard to understand or hard to put together, but it's very challenging. That comes out of the history of Corinth. Uh, first of all, what we know is that uh, the Corinthian church was one of the first churches that uh, Paul really established. Uh, it was uh, a church that, that he had personally been, been at, uh, worked in, uh, worked to build up. Uh, it was also in a very, very, very pagan place. Um, and every uh, crude and uh, immoral behavior that you might think to associate with a pagan place was present in Corinth. Uh, Corinth uh, was an ancient city, but really under the Roman Empire, it turned into a crossroads of sort because of uh, you know, the, the way that the Romans structured their, structured their roads. It became... Excuse me. It became a place where, by necessity, there was just tons of commerce and travel, and so it grew very large. Uh, but it was originally a you know a Greek city, and it had uh, at the um, uh, pinnacle of the city, as most of the ancient Greek cities did, uh, a, a, a necropolis-like structure, a, a high city, a city, a, a, an elevated place within itself, and there uh, the god goddess of love was worshipped and. Uh, and deified, and uh, temple priestesses who were temple prostitutes would uh, go out and among the city and solicit uh, service and donation for funding of the temple. This was a this was a pagan place, very pagan, very difficult. A lot of times we read in the New Testament passages about idols and idolatry, and it doesn't it doesn't really hit hard for for many of us. We most of us not grown up in a culture where there are statues and, and you know, sacrifices being offered down the street to a particular God. Now, and we deal with the spiritual aspect of those things, which is legitimate and very present in our world. I mean, you don't have to go very far uh, in New Paris or the surrounding area to find all kinds of sacrifices being made in worship of people's idols. So we cover the spiritual aspect of that, but the actual practice that went on in the New Testament is, thankfully, mercifully, uh, not a part of our immediate culture here, for most of us at least. Um, when we read about idols and idolatry and people struggling with idols and idolatry in the New Testament, you need to understand it's not just bowing down to statues that was so difficult and challenging for these people. It was all of the behavior that was exercised in the worship of these idols and statues. The stuff that went on in these temples, the stuff that went on among the priests and the priestesses, 
the messages of debauchery that were being given and instructed to the people and how they would worship these gods is stuff that we would never, ever, ever think to associate with any temple or religious institution. We come from a very Judeo-Christian understanding of what a house of worship should look like. I mean, there should be singing, and there should be, you know, some praying, uh, and there should be some talking, and there might be a couple rituals depending on the religious service. You know, maybe there'll be, a, a if you're a Christian, there'll be a baptism, or there'll be the Lord's Supper, or whatever else in some other, but, and that's our understanding. That is, that is not the history of our world in temples and worship and structure. And so sometimes we'll read things in the Bible about people struggling with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and we're like, what's the big deal? It's just a little statue. And we lose sight of what the real struggle is, which is anything remotely associated with that little statue was also associated with all of the evil and destructive and painful memories of everything associated with that little statue in the worship of these places. Well, Corinth is, is one of those places. It had a synagogue, so it had a, a group of Jewish people who worshipped you know, the God of Israel in Corinth, but the overwhelming majority of the entire population had not only no regard for the God of Israel, but no knowledge of the God of Israel. And they were worshiping their own gods. So this was not some, you know, fringe religious sect doing these immoral and, and wicked things. This was the overwhelming majority of the population, with only a very small percentage of the population uh, abstaining um, for any kind of spiritual regard for morality. This is a, a very challenging place for Paul. So he shows up in the synagogue, and you could read about it in Acts. He shows up in the synagogue, and, and he's teaching the people of, of Israel about their Messiah, Jesus. And he's persuading some uh, leaders of the synagogues, are being, of the synagogue, they're being persuaded. Uh, but then, of course, some are not accepting Jesus as the Messiah, and, and they make the mistake of taking Paul to court, in the Gentile court, saying this man is... Is, is preaching, uh, you know, uh, worship of, of a foreign god. That's what they say. Well, this is a Gentile court. This is a, this is a civic court. It's not a religious court. But the Jews take Paul there anyway. It doesn't work very well for them. They just throw out the case. They don't care what Paul is preaching. This is a huge city. They, this is not a tiny little town. They don't care what this one guy's saying. And they beat up one of the Jews, either one of the people who accompanied Paul to the court, or more likely, one of the people who brought the case against Paul to the court, they beat him up right then and there as the case is dismissed. Um, so th this, is not, <laughs> this is not a place where there is any sort of favorable mindset to the God of Israel, or to any sort of, you know, uh, dissenting religious ideal. This is a, a corrupt place of pagan worship where there's commerce and money driving the industries, and the people are there from all the different backgrounds. And um, The word Corinth in Greek 
was used to describe uh, Corinthianizing or a behavior uh, of people. It was, it was that kind of a place. You know, it was, it was like a, if there's any connotation in your mind when we, when we talk about Vegas, that's, the, that's, you know, Vegas is a city, but it also has connotations. Um, and it's well marketed for those connotations. The word Corinth, when it was used in ancient literature, ancient literature we still have preserved, was used as a verb, not, not a noun for the city. So this is a difficult place. And this Christ in Corinth, and that people hear a message of Jesus Christ, and they feel called to a different way of living by Jesus Christ. And they respond to that calling, and their lives are changed. And this is not just an isolated person or two. There are Jews and Gentiles alike called into a relationship with God through this man, Jesus Christ. And they start living together in Christian community as a church should. In other words, gathering to worship, gathering to observe the Lord's Supper, gathering to encourage one another to study God's word. And they start doing this and the church starts to grow. Um, Paul leaves on a missionary journey and a gifted teacher named Apollos shows up, and he begins teaching them. And he's a very different teacher than Paul, but he's teaching the gospel. He's just, he just has a different, a more studied, a more, a more uh, uh, um, practiced approach to it. And God's word is being unfolded, and people are hearing, and people are learning. The Spirit of God at work among them is obvious because people are repenting. They're turning away from sin. And their lives are genuinely reflecting the change of the gospel. And they're making a dent in the darkness around them. And, uh, and then what happens is what always happens. What happens today? What's happened here? There are problems in the church. And there are difficulties. And Paul has written a letter First, he writes a letter. We don't have that one. And then he's written a letter in return, and he writes this letter in response. There are some doctrinal questions in the letter. He doesn't even get to the doctrinal questions, the teaching questions about Christianity. He doesn't even get to those until like chapters and chapters into this letter, this response. His opening chapters are in response instead to some private correspondence, some private communication that he's had from faithful people in the Corinthian church who are concerned about some of the things that are going on. And he's going to spend chapter after chapter responding to those private concerns. And he's responding to these private concerns in a very public letter. <laughs> he's not writing individually and quietly. He's responding very publicly. And it's not, and you'll see this, it's not with the intent of embarrassing someone or hurting someone's feelings, or standing up and making a big point. These things are important, and they need to be understood. And that's also why 1 Corinthians is often not taught verse by verse, because there are things here that are uncomfortable. There are things here that are challenging. But when I really think about my own faith and, and why my life is kind of structured around the ideals that it's structured around. A lot of it comes down to the way I understand passages from 1 Corinthians. 
And so I want you to be challenged in these things too. Um, so we're going to start reading. I'm not sure how many verses we'll get in through it today. I think I've outlined more than we'll get into. Uh, so we will not get through the outline, I don't think. But let's start in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's just read and go through it a little bit here. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother. Now, a couple interesting points here. First of all, all of Paul's introductions have similarities whenever he writes a letter. But they also have distinctive and unique differences to whoever he's writing to. Now here, he's writing a letter to a church, as we're going to discover, who is breaking into little factions. That's the very first issue he deals with in the church. There are others. But one of the concerns he's had is someone has relayed to him that the people in the Corinthian church are starting to become followers of men instead of followers of Jesus Christ. And so he starts here by reiterating an apostleship because believe it or not, some of the people in the Corinthian church are actually starting to say, I'm a follower of Paul, who started the church, while others are saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm more of a follower of Apollos, who had come along and worked in the church since. And so he's reiterating in his, his introduction here, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now, an apostle is someone, a messenger, someone sent by Jesus Christ through the will of God. So whether you say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter, or whatever, just know this is with, delivered with all the authority of one sent by Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. You can't say, well, you know, that's Paul's letter, so all of you people who follow Paul have to pay attention to that, but, you know, we're more followers of Apollos and Peter, so it doesn't apply. We don't get that option from Paul's introduction. This is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and then Sosthenes, our brother. Now, Sosthenes is just the secretary working and helping Paul. It's interesting because Sosthenes is the name of the guy who got beat up when the case was taken against Paul in the civic court in Corinth. We don't know if it's the same Sosthenes, but commentators have speculated that it very well may be, and that Paul perhaps is including him for a strategic reason in the letter. I don't know, but it's interesting that this is the name of the guy, if you turn to Acts and read the passage, that got beat up when the case got thrown out against Paul. Verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, the word church is the Greek word ekklesia. If you've been around our church for a while, you may have heard that, ekklesia. When we think of the word church, we think of buildings or groups of people. The latter is the better way to understand it. Ekklesia means the called out ones or the assembled ones. It was a word in Greek that they would use with regularity, and it didn't necessarily have any religious connotation at all. You could say that all the people who showed up to watch the Olympic Games were an ecclesia. You could say that all the athletes who showed up to participate in the Olympic Games were a church. But this becomes religious in the sense of God has called out a people from the world, and those people are called with a purpose... And so those people ought to live and behave a certain way because God has separated them from the rest of the world. Now, in Corinth, that is very real because there is such a strong contrast 
from the way God has called people to live and the way that everyone else in Corinth is worshiping and serving their own deities. There's a huge contrast. There should be a huge contrast in our world, too. But the lines have gotten blurry in some cases. Because we have a culture with the history so comfortable with Christian phrases and Christian terms, even Christian ideals like love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and Christian holidays like uh, the worship of a Savior who's come born of a virgin in a manger. We have such a Christian language tradition and such a Judeo-Christian view of basic morals, even if we are morphing and evolving those as we speak in our world right now, the background is still, sto- still so strong that the lines can get a little blurry. Someone can say they're a Christian, and until you engage them on what they actually believe, sometimes it can be difficult to tell what they mean by that. Not so in Corinth. The called-out ones in Corinth were very different. And as they were very different, they were called to be very different. They were fundamentally different. They were called to live fundamentally differently. Now, you are too, and so am I. But for them, they felt the conviction of this differently than you and I might feel some of it. And that's why some of the things in the opening chapters here are difficult to deal with because they're difficult for us to relate to, but not for them. There's behavior that is supposed to change. Stuff that is appalling that must change. Look at verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ's Sanctified is the idea of our lives transforming into the image of Jesus Christ. Notice, in the verse, who does that work? What does it say? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. As we walk with the Lord, our lives are supposed to be in perpetual rejecting and putting away of sin and embracing holy and righteous living. That is an ongoing transformation. You are not saved by this putting away of sin and slowly becoming more holy and and righteous before the Lord. No, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And you're baptized and, and we recognize you as a Christian. But the process of living a Christian life is an ongoing endeavor in sanctification. Now, there are a lot of people in a couple of weeks here, statistically speaking, who are going to make a big life change. Do you know what they're going to do? They're going to join a gym. They are. Statistically speaking, they're going to join a gym. Uh, The number is around 12%. Of all the people who join a gym in the course of a year, about 12% of those memberships are in January, which is, you know, a much greater percentage than the 7 to 8% throughout the rest of the months of the year. And we know why. Because we had lots of candy at the end of October, and we had a big feast at the end of November, and then we have two holidays at the end of December, 
And if you're like me and you get on the scale in the mornings, you see a difference. And there are a lot of people who are going to try to address what appears to be a negative winter trend in their life, and in January, they're going to join a gym. And there's a lot of people who've been paying for those gym memberships for a long time, a lot more than 12% who are going to start showing up again in January for at least 30 days or whatever else it is. I don't know where you are on that spectrum, okay? But uh, these are all people who are demonstrating a real concern for their physical condition. And what you should be demonstrating a real concern for is your spiritual condition. I am much less concerned about how fat you are or how skinny you are than how evil you are or how sanctified you are as a Christian. You ought to be concerned about the state of your soul. That's not just true if you're lost. That has to be the case if you're a Christian. And if it's not the case, you find yourself in the situation that the Corinthians are in. Paul is not questioning their salvation in this letter. He's not calling them all evil, ungodly people whose professions of faith aren't real. He is telling them, you have been called by God, the ecclesia. You've been sanctified in Jesus Christ. Your lives should be changing. The condition of your soul is important. What is the condition of your soul like this morning? That's what you should be challenged with in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What is the condition of your soul? If you've been a Christian for 20 years, that's great. What's the condition of your soul? What's the state of your spiritual life with God? And maybe in our sense of brevity to dwell on that subject, we just say, well, I'm doing okay. Not as good as I should, but I'm doing okay. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. It's not good enough for the Lord, and it's not good enough for Paul. He is demanding a real evaluation here. Look at verse 2. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here might be a decent litmus test for the condition of your soul. When is the last time you used the name of Jesus in a conversation? Now maybe you hit it at Christmas Eve. When is the last private prayer of the Lord at all? Let alone called out to Him in personal, private prayer. You don't need to join a gym in January. I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. That's not my judgment. I probably should have been at a gym all year. I shouldn't probably be in the situation that I'm in. But you don't need to join a gym. You need to join a church. And you need to take these things seriously. Because the Lord is concerned with the condition of your soul. You have been called out of sin. You have been called into a sanctified relationship with Jesus Christ. How is it? Don't get on the scale. Get on your knees and, and answer the question. From where you sit in your chair this morning, answer the question honestly. Verse 3 begins with the most Christian word that I can think of. Grace. Peace is a very Jewish word. 
They would greet people with the word peace, shalom, shalom, shalom. But the English word that we are most thankful to the Christian tradition for bringing to our vocabulary is the word grace. God's blessing upon us which we don't deserve. And this is how Paul begins. It becomes the customary greeting for the church everywhere. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we just came off all of the Christmas carols and the time where we have the angels announcing, you know, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That's peace from God. (laughs) Goodwill from God toward men and the delivery of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And now we're to connect those two things. Peace with God comes by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So while you're doing the spiritual evaluation of your soul, understand that your behavior in no way is responsible for your salvation. Jesus Christ has saved your soul. God has made peace with you and your behavior should reflect that. Now verse 4. This is genuine. Some commentators have thought that this is sarcastic of Paul in light of all of the negativity that comes as the book goes on, but it's not sarcastic. This is genuine. Paul approaches all of his letters like this, trying to glorify God and express thankfulness for the good things. This is what he says. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. We'll pause there. We're mid-sentence, but we'll pause. I thank my God always concerning you. And when I thank God, it's concerning you, but I thank God for his grace, which was given to Jesus Christ Jesus. I thank God for what Jesus Christ has given you. That's what he's saying. That you were, what has Christ given them? That you were enriched in everything by Jesus. In all utterance and all knowledge. Now, the word utterance is an interesting translation choice. Because the Greek word is simply logos. Meaning word. Word or speech. That's it. There's no special version of logos here that we should translate it as utterance. It is simply logos. It's the same Greek word used 330 times in the New Testament. Nearly every one of them, word or speech. That's all it is. So what the verse says, you are enriched by Jesus in all speech and all knowledge. Folks, that is what the church has to become. The things that we know about God are true and come from God. These are the truths that we cling to. And the things that we say about God, the things that we say in the world around us, the things that we say in fellowship are enriched by the knowledge of God. This has to be true. If you don't have this, then you don't have maturity in a church. If you don't have a right knowledge of God then you can't have right speech, right word concerning God. And if you don't have right word concerning God, then you can't have teaching and preaching that's effective concerning God. And if you don't have preaching and teaching that is effective, you cannot have growth and maturity in the church. 
So when Paul says that you were enriched in everything by him, he means it. If the spiritual condition of your soul is bad or wrong or on a downtrend, it is coming from the fact that you are not giving yourself to right speech and knowledge of God on a regular basis. That doesn't mean it's not being said or spoken. As we find out in Corinth, it was being said and spoken here. They had had Paul. They had had Apollos. Based on what we'll read in chapter 1, they may have even had Peter. The problem was not bad teaching. God had blessed them and gifted them and given them everything that they needed in word and knowledge. And the spiritual condition was poor because the people had not all received it. They wouldn't all receive it. They wouldn't all take heed to it. None of the things that are going to come up in these next chapters are just mind-blowing epiphanies that required some deep metaphysical understanding to know what was right and wrong. None of them that are going to come up here are just incredibly... And they're, they're so opaque that we can't drill down to the truth. They had knowledge of God and they had good speech. They quit paying attention. Maybe they went to the service and they sat there and they just kind of endured and nodded their head when they agreed with something and just kind of stared around into space and wondered about what was coming. I don't know. Maybe their services just went on and on and on and on. You know, we find later on that there was speaker after speaker after speaker. Everybody's tired if I talk for 30 minutes. Can you imagine if it was 30 minutes here, then... You know, Wyatt's got his own 30-minute presentation later, and then Pastor Justin's going to come up with his own 45-minute presentation, and maybe it was just droning and droning and droning, and the sheer human condition of living in this world had just turned into blank stares everywhere. And by doing that, the Word of God was devalued, and it wasn't having an effect that it should have had. I don't know what it was, but I know it wasn't a lack of teaching or understanding. It wasn't a lack of knowledge of God or a lack of right teaching. God had given them that. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, we saw fruit. We saw the work of God in you. Verse 7, so that you come short eagerly gift. We saw evidence of the Spirit of God eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is where I want to spend a few moments before we close. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in them, so they were short in no gift. And then this is the part. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the part that I am afraid that we have lost track of. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word revelation just means coming or uncovering. It's talking about when Jesus will return. 
I think in some Christian circles, there is more belief in the virgin birth than the return of Jesus Christ. I can say with 100% confidence that in many Christian minds, reflecting at the first coming of Jesus Christ far outweighs any anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are disconnected from this in the New Testament. Christian people are to live in an anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. And when I say that, I don't mean that they're supposed to sit around guessing dates and timelines and staring at stars and all that nonsense. I don't mean any of that. I mean they are supposed to be living a life that demonstrates an eager waiting for Jesus to return and set things in order. Now we are told that at the return of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is not the state of the world now. That is an anticipation of the future. Now listen to this. This is from Acts chapter 1. Here is Jesus. As he ascends into heaven, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him, Go into heaven. This is the launching point of the church. Not merely that Jesus lived and died and rose again, but that he lived and died and rose again and he is returning to judge the world. That's the launching point. That he is returning to set things straight. There's some military guys in here. When Jesus returns, your services will no longer be required. There are some teachers in here who deal with all the difficult family situations in the world, when Jesus returns, things will be set right. We should live in an eager anticipation of His return. Here is Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, listen to this, grace to you and peace from Him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. Even so, the tribes and the peoples of the earth who will be judged by Him will mourn when they see Him. And then he says, even so, despite the mourning, Amen, let it be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's how Revelation begins. So Paul says here, 
you come short in no spiritual gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this might be the one aspect where Corinth is better than New Paris. Because I think we are in more anticipation of what comes tomorrow than we are concerned about eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. He will return. Every eye will see him. You know, many of us are not very good at waiting in general. And I just have a couple comments to make about this. Waiting is hard because you can get frustrated while you're waiting for something to happen. You can get frustrated with the world. You can get frustrated with politics. You can get frustrated with what's going on at your job, what's going on in your home, what's going on at school. It is frustrating to wait. And Christian, you have been called to wait on the Lord to set these things right. Now you've been called to wait in a specific way. That's what the rest of the book is going to get to. How you're supposed to go about this life of waiting. There are instructions, but nevertheless, you have been called to wait for the Lord. That is difficult. It's difficult because it reminds us of a fundamental truth from the Bible. That we are sojourners, that we are strangers, that we are pilgrims in a land that is not our own. That we are in fact citizens of another kingdom. We can grow frustrated when we see the kingdom in which we sojourn, the kingdom in which we live, the world in which we travel, and we see things as they should not be. And that frustration can give forth to all sorts of negative and wrong and sinful thoughts and emotions and actions and speeches and stances. This world is not our home. That is discouraging. It is difficult to see the world that we live in suffer. But we are awaiting entrance into our kingdom. We are awaiting the return of our king. Waiting. Second thing difficult about waiting. We can get lazy when we wait for something. Uh, like the kid who knows that the final exam is two weeks away and thinks that there's plenty of time. There's lots of time. They, every once in a while at work, they put me through some training stuff. Any of you guys ever have jobs or places where you have to go through training? I just went through one, and the point that this guy made over and over again is usually, this was like three hours of training to get to this point. Usually, maybe they thought I really needed to hear this, I don't know. It wasn't just me. But usually the things that we have deadlines that are two or three weeks away, the deadlines are two or three weeks away because it's going to take more than a few hours to accomplish the task correctly. And I thought it was a lot of belaboring to say that one line, and yet I'm glad he said it. I think that there are a lot of Christian people, and that's really the condition of their soul, procrastination. Things that they know are not where the Lord Jesus would want them were he to return, and things that they don't care to change because, after all, that's not going to happen anytime soon. 
things that they know are not where they need to be spiritually in their life, in the church, with their family, with their reading and their understanding and their prayer, and, and they just kick the can down the road because after all, we have lots of time. I'm not going to die anytime soon. Is it possible that by delaying the sanctification and the health of your soul as you should be in pursuit of, is it accomplished what you were meant, in fact, wasting your life? and wasting the years that God has given you to accomplish what you were meant to accomplish through this process of sanctification? Do you think that on your deathbed or in your final years that you are somehow going to do something so extravagant as to make up for all of what God could have accomplished if you merely would have pursued the health of your soul over the course of decades as opposed to giving it only a fleeting glance at the very end? And of course, we know most of us will not be afforded that opportunity anyway. Death is more sinister than that. It doesn't always come with a long wind down so that all your affairs can be put in order. The Lord Jesus will return. And do you know the metaphor given to us in Matthew as Jesus himself describes his return? He describes it as a thief in the night. Why? Is a thief in the night a good thing? No, it's not a good thing. Just like it's not a good thing that all the tribes will mourn at his appearing. All the peoples and nations will mourn and think that what a catastrophe that Jesus has returned to judge. It's not a good thing. You will not be given all the chances to put your affairs in order. Now is the day of salvation. That's the message of the Bible. And if now is the day of salvation then today and tomorrow and every day of your life is the day of sanctification or else the thief in the night is going to steal your soul. Eagerly awaiting for the Lord. But people procrastinate. I'll, I'll do that someday. I'll do that someday. When the kids are raised, when my retirement comes, when my life gets easier, when things are less stressful, when it's more convenient... I'll improve things someday. Nonsense. That's not waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's not it. You know how you wait for the arrival of somewhere. You get everything in order and then you wait. And the third mistake of this is some people, rather than having the humility to wait for the Lord to set things in order, they want to do it all themselves. They'll launch out and set everything in order. They're going to fix every problem. They're going to address every issue. And this isn't the way either. This is not the way. It takes a humility to recognize that this world is so broken and people in this world are so sinful that you cannot possibly put everything in order. It is enough that you be concerned about the condition of your soul. It is enough that you be concerned about the condition of the souls of the people around you. It is not your job to put everything in order. Jesus is going to do that. It is your job to focus on the job that he has given you, on the role that he has given you, on the person he has called you to become. That's your job. To say, well, things are moving too slow for me. I'm going to jump in and take the bull by the horns. No, I know that's my personality, but no. There has to be a humility to wait upon the Lord and focus on the things we are called to focus on. I am concerned, not of your salvation. I'm concerned about the condition of your soul. 
I'm concerned that things are not healthy. And I don't think that has a single thing to do with the teaching or the preaching at this church. I'm concerned about a lack of anticipation for the moment when you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for your life. Some of us are more concerned about what's going to happen when we get into our summer wear next year than we are what Jesus is going to think of our lives. Some of us are more concerned about what's going to happen at our next, doc- at our next doctor's appointment, our next evaluation, whatever it may be, and giving precious little thought to what the God of the universe is going to say about your soul. And that's not right. I had two questions this morning then as we close. For the Christian, are you prepared to see Jesus? Are you prepared for His appearing? Is your house in order? Have you done and are you doing spiritually what the Lord is requiring of you? That's not my job to tell you. Praise God, it's not my job. I mean, I will tell you what God's Word says. I will call on you to do the right thing. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking if you respond to me. I hope you don't hear me saying, hey, I think there's a whole bunch of people who aren't doing what I say. (laughs) Not the case. I'm concerned about the health of your soul. Are you prepared to stand before the Lord. If you're prepared, then you're ready and you're waiting for the Lord. If you're not prepared, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? And I can say this liberally in the text that's coming. What kind of fool are you? What are you doing? And the second question Is Jesus worth waiting for? If you're waiting for him, is he worth waiting for? This is what I'm asking. Do you see in the return of Jesus Christ just kind of the icing on the cake of a life well lived? Or do you see in the return of Jesus Christ the coming of your inheritance in paradise with your God? Do you see in the return of Jesus Christ the world as it was meant to be without the destruction and suffering of sin? Do you see in the return of Jesus Christ the reunion with the people of God who have gone before us and have lived and died under the shadow of death? Do you see in the return of Jesus Christ the destruction and defeat of death forever. Is Jesus worth waiting for? Because I think that perhaps some of the evaluations that we would render is maybe, maybe not. If Jesus is not worth waiting for, then you will pursue treasure on this earth. If, if Jesus is not worth waiting for, then you will neglect your soul For the sake of something else. But if Jesus is worth waiting for. If he truly will. 
judge and reward the product of your spiritual life, then your spiritual life is where you will invest yourself the most with the most passion and devotion. That comes up in this book. That not everyone, when they stand before the Lord, will receive the same reward. But if we see the return of Jesus Christ not about reward, not about inheritance, if we see the return of Jesus Christ as just the get out of hell free card at the end of a life that we've lived for ourselves, you're not waiting for the Lord and you won't have a healthy soul. And if you get to heaven, it'll be as 1 Corinthians 3 describes, by the skin of your teeth. And you might not arrive there at all. Thankfully, that's not my call to make. There will be no pass-fail on Sunday morning here unless the Lord shows up and does it himself. Is Jesus worth waiting for? Is he worth anticipating? So this is how we will be challenged as we go through the book and I hope that it's been challenging this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your calling in our lives that you have convicted us of our sin, caused us to repent and to place our faith and trust in you. Father, help us to see this as the starting line of our Christian life and not the finish line, as the launching point and not the destination. Help us to value sanctification and the flourishing of our soul as we draw closer to you. Help us not to be content to live lives with souls that are sickly and suffering as we pursue everything in the world but you. What a ridiculous way for a people who have been called by you to live. What foolishness. Spare us from the foolishness of our own minds. Save us and give us an appreciation for the beauty that it will be at your appearing, for the grace that we'll experience as you say to those who have trusted you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. Give us a longing for a kingdom without sin, for a world without funerals. Give us a longing for a place where we don't have to worry about all of our relationships, about gossip and backbiting and betrayal and what someone truly thinks. Give us a longing for a world free of the curse of sin that plagues the human condition and brings about destruction in every corner. Give us a longing for a world that is not under the threat of a war or a nuclear disaster. Help us to see you as the solution. Help us to see you in the coming of your son Jesus Christ as the ultimate answer. Give us a heart of anticipation. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.